2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to begin by reading in verse 12, 12 to 17. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. On April 30th, 1945, the fatal blow to the Nazi regime was dealt with the death of Hitler and the sacking of Berlin in the subsequent days. Though fighting continued for over a week, until on May 8th, the German forces issued an unconditional surrender. And even after that, there were scattered forces, there were fleeing forces abroad that had to be dealt with, fleeing war criminals that had to be arrested, and justice that had to be meted out, some of which we've heard of even in the recent years of old men, 80s and 90-year-old men being tried for war crimes from back then. Though the war was over, there were many places that did not resemble that reality. And what we're going to see in our passage today is a reminder that no matter what our world looks like today, no matter what is going on, the war has been won. And we just need to remain faithful. We just need to stand fast on the word of God and be faithful to evangelize and make disciples knowing that the victory is already won. Christ has secured that in his work on the cross. The victory has already been won and all we need to do is be faithful. In our text this morning, we're going to have three points to, to exemplify that. Number one, the triumphs spreading scent. Number two, the victors fracturing fragrance. Number three, the speaker's qualifying character. The triumphs spreading scent, the victors fracturing fragrance, and the speaker's qualifying character. Let me read 2 Corinthians 2.14 again. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The beginning of verse 14 is kind of abrupt in the context. It's very emphatic, but it's kind of abrupt. Paul says, but thanks be to God. And here, Paul is breaking out into a doxology of praise. He's worshiping God for what he has done and continues to do. But as you read the context, what is it that Paul is so worked up about here? Look at verses 12 and 13 again. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. That seems like such a dismal warm-up to Paul's profound worship here. But we just have to understand the context a little bit better to get why Paul is so excited at this point. Just flip over a couple pages to chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll begin in verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had 
no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul didn't stay at Troas, even when there was an open door for the gospel, because his spirit was in turmoil. So he went to Macedonia. But coming into Macedonia, Macedonia was where uh, Philippi, the church at Philippi was, or Thessalonica. He could have been at one of these two churches, two churches that had brought him great joy, and yet he was still not comforted. He described himself as fearful, restless, downcast, afflicted. That's how he describes himself in those verses. But what comforted him was the coming of Titus. And not just the coming of Titus, but the news that Titus carried with him. Continue on, look at verse 7. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he has comforted us, comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through it. So the reason that Paul was so distraught to the point of not even being able to minister in Troas where there was an open door or rejoice in the churches in Macedonia It was because he was awaiting word regarding how the church in Corinth had responded to his letter of 1 Corinthians. He was fearful, restless, downcast, and afflicted, waiting to hear how the church at Corinth would respond to his strong, strong, corrective letter. Have you ever had to write one of those letters? Maybe a letter or an email to someone that you love dearly that was confrontational? And as soon as you drop it in the mail or you hit the send button on your computer, you start second-guessing yourself. You wonder, how will this be received? Will they soften their hearts and be humbled? Turn from their sin or will they remain hard-hearted? in their sin. Maybe you wait a day or a week with email, maybe a few weeks with snail mail, or maybe the person calls you the following week. Yet, those days, weeks, possible months leave you with knots in your stomach. Always mulling it over in your head, what they're thinking, how they're responding. Or to give another illustration, to add the element of victory here that Paul has in this verse, just to try and understand Paul's turmoil, imagine you're watching your favorite football team in the Super Bowl, and the game depends on one final Hail Mary throw for the victory. It all comes down to this, and and maybe you've been there watching your team. Your, Your stomach's in knots. You're distraught over what's going to happen. The quarterback snaps the ball. He has time to wait for the receivers to go downfield, and he throws the ball downfield. It's got enough strength on it to get to the end zone. Then stop, shut off the TV, and wait six months to figure out what happened next. That's just a taste of the turmoil that Paul's soul was in as he waited to hear how the church at Corinth was going to respond. He had invested in them for years, trained with them, trained them for years. Only here, Paul was the quarterback, not just one of the spectators. Paul was the quarterback throwing the ball down the field, and he had to wait months to find out what happened whether they would catch it or not, or reject him. And what we have in our text today is Paul's victory song and dance, so to speak, 
concerning the Corinthians. That's when he's writing them, recounting his coming to Macedonia. He left Troas and he came to Macedonia in the text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He then <clears throat> breaks out in song and dance his victory song for the Corinthians. When he's re- writing to them, recounting what has happened, though he was downcast, fearful, and afflicted, as he weighed their response here, he got to Macedonia, he heard Titus's resp- response, and he burst into praise and worship. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. And so that sets the tone of the passage. Paul here, he's on cloud nine. He's been on an emotional low for months. But now he couldn't get any higher. He's ecstatic here as he writes this, as he remembers how he felt first hearing the news of the Corinthians' repentance. Thanks be to God. As verse 14 continues, who always in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. The phrase in the ESV there, leads in triumphal procession. It's all one word in the Greek. And the only other time it's used in Scripture is in Colossians 2.15, where it says, He, that is Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. A form of this verb is often attested to in 400 B.C. with a sense of to display but this later developed in the Roman, Greco-Roman period under the influence of the Latin word triumphare, and it took on the meaning of to celebrate a triumph. And particularly, it later became to refer to a Roman general triumph. As a Roman general would have an extremely important triumph over someone else, he would get this victory parade in Rome. So a triumph was a victorious procession in which the conquering general would bring the actual spectacle of their achievements before the eyes of the fellow citizens in Rome. And this triumphal victory procession imagery is what Paul is evoking here. A Roman triumphal procession, it was the most elaborate and rare. You would be fortunate to see one in your lifetime. It would be like a magnificent parade making its way down the primary streets of Rome. One of these triumphs was led by, first of all, the local authorities, the local magistrates, all dressed in their most glorious attire. They would be followed by the Roman Senate. It was a national affair. Everybody was involved. We've got the local authorities, the Roman Senate, The senators would be followed by trumpeters. They would be followed by people carrying the spoils of victory. Gold articles, when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in in 70 AD, he paraded all the artifacts of the temple through the streets of Rome in his triumph. You have local authorities, senators, trumpeters, people carrying all of the loot, all of the treasure. Then there were a couple sacrificial bowls for the end of the triumph. And then followed them all of the prisoners and captives of the battle won. So not only the treasures of the battle, but also the defeated parties. And generally these captives were killed at the end of the procession. They were kept alive long enough just to parade them around in shame. There would also be singers in there somewhere along with priests who would be burning incense for a fragrant aroma. And finally, at the end, would be the Roman general in the most elaborate chariot clothed in the most magnificent robes fit only for a king. And his army would then follow him in this procession. So these processions, most magnificent with plenty of pomp, they could last for days. It was the celebration of a lifetime. This once-in-a-lifetime parade, victory parade, that is how Paul is describing his situation in verse 14. He isn't the victor, but he is in the procession. 
He's in the victory march. And what greater place to be than in the victory march of Christ Himself? There is much debate about where Paul sees himself in this victory march. It's easy to picture Paul as one of the soldiers in the victory march. As one of the trumpeters, the heralds, as a priest burning incense, or even the spoils of the battle. We are Christ's prize. But the direct object of this verb is always the conquered prisoners. So Paul sees himself here as a prisoner that's been conquered, put into this procession. And we could elaborate on how Paul is a a prisoner in this procession, but I don't think that's Paul's Paul's point. Paul doesn't seem to focus on his role in here as much as on God and what God is doing. It is God who always leads us in his triumphal procession. There's the adverb there, always, indicating duration or extent of action. It never ceases. But there's also the fact that this verb here is a present participle indicating ongoing, continuous action. Paul gives double emphasis on the fact that God is present tense always and continually leading us in a triumphal procession. And it is important to remember this as believers, especially when we are discouraged, downtrodden, afflicted, that the victory is already won. And we too, as believers, we are marching in this triumphal procession. Even if we are discouraged with what is going on in the world, in our own life, family tensions, someone in unrepentant sin. We can praise and worship God, thanking Him that we are in this victory march and on the way to the final stop of paradise. The victory has already been won in Christ when our souls are downcast, we can preach to ourselves like David did in the Psalms and say, why are you downcast, O soul? Lift up your head. Remember that you are marching in the victory triumph with Christ ever and always. And look at the second half of verse 14. God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Paul says, God, through us, he's talking about the the apostles there, but that is a reference to us as believers as well who proclaim the gospel. God, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. In this, one of these Roman triumphal processions, there would be As already mentioned, the priests with the censers burning incense that would fill the air with a sweet aroma. But there would also be the people would throw wreaths of flowers into the streets in front of the procession. And these flowers would be trampled by the procession, crushing the flowers and releasing that sweet smell into the air. And the lingering smell of the procession could be detected days later as those flowers remain trampled in the streets. And Paul says it is through him and through his apostolic companions that this fragrance of victory is spread everywhere they go. But what is this fragrance? How do we spread this fragrance? How did Paul spread the fragrance of the victory of Christ? Is it behaving in such a way that is an attractive fragrance to draw unbelievers? This fragrance is not actions. It is the knowledge of Him that is Christ. The apostles spread the fragrance of Christ by spreading the knowledge of Him everywhere. Look at the text there in verse 14. It's the fragrance of the knowledge. The fragrance is the knowledge. 
That is, preaching the full gospel message that there is salvation for sinners in the person and work of Christ for all who believe and repent. For all who recognize their utter sinfulness and that their best deeds are merely soiled garments before God. They have nothing to offer God. The only hope for anyone is to believe and trust in the work of Christ, what He has done to save in His death and resurrection. Just living a certain way doesn't spread the saving aroma of Christ. It is the faithful preaching of the gospel. Living the way that Christ wants you to is important, but it's just like the rest of observable general revelation. It doesn't save anyone. People can see, just like looking at the world, they can see the power of God at work within you, but they need special revelation. They need words, the words of the gospel to be saved. Just living a certain way without preaching Christ doesn't save anyone. It doesn't spread the aroma of Christ's victory. That is through faithful preaching and faithful church members diligently proclaiming the gospel that the fragrant aroma of Christ's victory is spread everywhere. The gates of hell cannot withstand the victory march of the church. Gates are defensive. The church is marching against the gates of hell. And the enemy within has already been disarmed. We simply march through the gates with Christ as our victor and we proclaim His triumph. And we call everyone to join. But as believers, we have the joy, the privilege, the responsibility to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ in the gospel. And it is God who does this through us. He uses us to do it. And Paul says that God is doing this in every place. In the Greek, the word always and the words for everywhere are kind of bookends on this verse. Verse 4 literally reads, And thanks be to God who... And then you have always, and then at the end you have everywhere. Always and everywhere that there are faithful Christians, the gospel is being spread. Everywhere and always that there are faithful Christians, they are proclaiming the victory of Christ over sin and death. So let us be encouraged, beloved, that while our bodies waste away here, our country erodes while sin ravages friends and family. We are in the victory procession for a king that will reign righteously forever and ever. And the destination for such a procession ends in our certain eternal joy and happiness with Christ forever. The victory is already won. Now we are on a mission to encourage unbelievers to lay their life down, to give up their life before they lose it for eternity. That is what we do. That is how we spread the fragrant aroma of Christ's victory in the world. We preach the gospel. But this message that Paul preached and that we preach will have a deep dividing effect. And that brings us to point number two, the victor's fracturing fragrance. Look at verse 15, 2 Corinthians 2, 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The word for aroma here is not the same as the word for fragrance. While the other word has neutral connotations, the word in the previous verse, which means it could be a good smell or a bad smell depending on the context, this word refers to a pleasing aroma. This word was often given to women as names. Such one person is recorded in the book of Philippians. You're probably familiar with it. It's the word euodia. It has the prefix for the word good on it, that eu 
It's an inherently good aroma. This is the aroma of Christ, which means that Christ is the source. We are this sweet aroma, but the source is really Christ in us because we are united in Him. We smell like Him, so to speak. He is the source. People can tell we've been around Him. There are three parties mentioned that this smell reaches. First, God. It reaches God, then those who are being saved, and then those who are perishing. First and foremost, we are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. In the triumphal procession, the procession would be, as I mentioned, crushing and releasing the sweet smell of those flowers, and the priests would be burning their incense. And all of this would be enjoyed by the Roman general who was at the end of the procession. The aroma would be in full force. The air would be full of that aroma by the time the general got there, and he would enjoy the sweet smell of victory. And when we proclaim the gospel to anyone, regardless of how they respond, such proclamation is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Every time you share the gospel, it's like stomping on more of those flowers in that procession, lighting the incense that the general at the back is going to thoroughly enjoy as he marches on his victory march. Whether people malign you for it, throw tomatoes at you, so to speak, in the procession, hurl insults at you, none of that detracts from the general at the back who is enjoying the sweet aroma of victory. God is pleased with a faithful proclamation regardless of people's response to it. So we are first an aroma to God, but we are also an aroma among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And these two groups have vastly different reactions. Look at the second half of verse 16. Or the first half of verse 16, rather. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. As I mentioned, in the triumphal procession, there marched the conquering enemy. The enemies conquered by the Roman general. Any leaders who had survived the battle, they were paraded along with all the soldiers. So while everyone around them was sniffing the sweet smell of victory, the various aromas of the procession, to those who were conquered, it was a smell of death. Because when the procession reached its end, they were going to meet their end. So the whole procession, they're marching, they're smelling these scents. To them, it is confirming their doom and their end. And those who are perishing, they hate it all the more. It's a constant reminder that their death is near and that they lost. And those who are dying, they hate this scent. They loathe it. They want to try and stop it. And we see this in our world. Those trying to stop the proclamation of the gospel because it reminds them of their death. I don't know if any of you have seen the video, the story of Nini's Deli in Chicago. A man by the name of of Juan, he's a second-generation immigrant from uh, somewhere in South America. His parents came over. He grew up in the States. His parents started a little grocery store, and when he got older, after living a life of sin and, and homosexuality and every kind of immorality, he came to Christ. The Lord saved him, and he took over his parents' grocery store and turned it into a restaurant. It was a restaurant that was the, one of the highest rated restaurants on Yelp. He got award after award, year after year, for having such great food and such a great atmosphere. 
But last summer, Juan, the owner of Nini's Deli, refused to promote Black Lives Matter. And eventually he was run out of town by them. For fear of his life, fear of his safety, he had to move to Texas. But during that time, as things in Black Lives Matter heated up, people began to press him to support Black Lives Matter. And at first, it was just on social media, and he refused. And he often, often proclaimed the gospel on social media, said, this is why I don't promote this. I promote Christ. My life is in Christ. He was faithful to the gospel. And he did that for a while, and eventually he had his church come, and they were preaching the gospel outside of his little restaurant. There was one person with a, a microphone and an amplification. They were just preaching the gospel, and they had other people out there talking to people who were in the crowd. But it was amazing. If you watch this video, you can look it up online. There were hordes of people that came out just because of their gospel proclamation. Hordes of people, all kinds of people, not just Black Lives Matter people, but LGBTQ people, people involved in all kinds of immorality coming out just to deride them, just to hate them, hurl insults at them. Everybody that walked by, they seemed to stop, to yell at them, to scream at them, to curse at them. To tell them that they, the people who are preaching the gospel, were the ones full of hate. It was almost demonic. With the hordes of hell coming out at this gospel preaching to try and shut it up. And as we faithfully teach and preach the gospel, as our evangelism teams go out, there's no doubt that this is how those who hate the word of God are going to react. Those who are perishing, they're going to react this way because it is a confirmation. It is reminding them of their death. It is reminding them that they are on their way to eternal damnation. And so as you preach the gospel, as the gospel is preached in this church, there are going to be those people who react this way. And it's not because we said anything wrong or said anything in an unloving way. Those who are perishing are going to hate the aroma no matter how nicely you say it. But to those who are being saved, it is the fragrance of life. Notice first, back in verse 15, it's not those who have been saved, but those who are present tense being saved. Not every unbeliever reacts to the gospel with immediate repugnance and aversion to it. Some unbelievers are drawn to it. Some people fake it for a while. Some people try to convince themselves that they like the smell when really they don't. But time always reveals through faithful gospel proclamation and the implications that come out of that in the local church it always reveals someone's true sense of what they think about the true gospel. But there are unbelievers who are drawn by the smell. They're curious. They've never smelled anything like it before. They're intrigued. So they ask questions. They stick around for a while. They continue to listen. And oftentimes the Lord uses that to save. In the last two uh, rounds of baptisms that we've had here. There's several people who had this in their testimony. They came and they were just drawn by the preaching and the teaching. And months later, somewhere along the line, the Lord saved them. They believed. And so the Lord uses that sweet smell to draw people in. And many people who like what they smell at first, it's an indication of what God is doing in their life, and then they get saved. Some do, some don't. But to those who are being saved, the gospel proclamation is a fragrance of life. In the ancient world, scents and aromas, they were thought to be quite powerful. They thought there was power in the scent itself to affect a person. 
Uh, I think it was Pythagoras. I was reading somebody in the ancient world. I think it was Pythagoras wrote of uh, mythical creatures who they didn't live on food, but they lived on fragrances, smelling flowers and such. That's what kept them alive. They thought that there was power in the fragrance themselves. Thus began the essential oils industry. (laughs) But in the ancient world, they thought that there was real life-giving power, has the power to save unto life. Just like the ancients thought that there was life-giving power in fragrances, Paul says the true eternal life-giving power doesn't enter the person through the nostrils, but through the ears and the hearing of the gospel. Saving knowledge is not gained by the subjective sense of smell, but the objective truths learned through the hearing of the gospel. And for us who are regenerated unto new life, we've been saved into eternal life. As the gospel continues to be proclaimed, it is a constant reminder of the sweet aroma of, to us of eternal life. We smell it now, just enough to taste it now, but we'll one day fully enjoy it when we meet Christ face to face and spend eternity with Him. And here Paul transitions to talk about who is qualified for this ministry. So I just remind you, beloved, as you proclaim the gospel, as you share the gospel with friends and family, you're often going to have two strong, different reactions. And that is by design. That is by nature what is going to happen. Don't be discouraged if you have people who react poorly. That doesn't necessarily mean you did it wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean you shared it in an unloving way. Those who are perishing hate it. But those who are being saved... It is a life-giving aroma that only reminds us that the victory is already won. So I would encourage you with that. Your faithful gospel proclamation, the outcome is not dependent on you, and God is always pleased with your gospel proclamation if it's faithful. So here Paul transitions to talk about who is qualified for this ministry. This is point number three, the speaker's qualifying character. The Corinthian church had been infiltrated by Judaizers and libertarians who were fracturing the church. They were tearing Paul down, maligning him to make themselves into super apostles. You'll see that term used throughout 2 Corinthians. Paul here is defending himself. There is a large contingent of teachers in Corinth who had turned the hearts of the people against Paul. Every word that he said, they tried to twist it and tell people he meant the worst. They interpreted it in the worst possible light. When that wasn't what Paul meant at all. They tried to tell him that he was fickle. He was bold in writing, but weak in person. They had painted a picture of the apostle that wasn't true to the Corinthian church. And the first half of 2 Corinthians is really Paul defending his own character. And here he does so again. He is reasserting his qualification to the ministry of gospel proclamation, to apostolic ministry, to his authority over the church in Corinth. But let's read the second half of 16 and 17. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. One commentator says, With a sudden turn, Paul asks, And for these things, who is sufficient? And these things point us back to the mighty ministry of gospel proclamation that saves many from death, makes a tremendous division among men, 
Then, Lenski goes on to say, two incisive words bring the startling question, who is sufficient? And the answer is not Christ. The word sufficient here is often translated as worthy. It has the idea of being good enough. And the answer to the question, as is usually the case in Paul's letter, it's not stated clearly, but it is implied. It's implied in the next verse. The implication, Paul says, is we are. And he clarifies just a few verses later. Paul's not being proud here. Look at a couple verses later in chapter 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. This is what Paul's confidence is in, that he is worthy of the ministry of the gospel. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul, he's defending his own character here. He's saying, I am worthy, I am good enough, I am sufficient for this ministry. And here, uh, Paul begins the explanation of the qualifications of a gospel proclaimer to herald the good news of Christ's victory. And here, Paul, he's really talking about ministers in a more prominent position in the church. People who are recognized teachers. And so we'll look at it in that light, and then we'll draw some uh, implications just for church members. Qualifications for every church member to participate in gospel proclamation. So Paul states the first qualification in the negative and then in the positive, the same one. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. First notice here that Paul says, many, so many. It is literally the many with an article. And the article indicates Paul is referring to a specific group. One commentator says, we need not give the article its strongest force and make it mean the majority, the hoi polloi. Have you heard that term before? The hoi polloi, that's Greek for the many. We need not give this article its strongest force and make hoi polloi mean the majority, although it is likely that at Corinth the majority of teachers were misleading the converts and that the Judaizers, Judaizers on the one hand and the advocates of Gentile license on the other far outnumbered the Apostle, Silvanus, and Timothy with whatever helpers they may have had. The meaning here seems to be the mob of teachers. So Paul says, the one who is sufficient and qualified for such gospel ministry is first not like the many or the mob of teachers found in the Corinthian church. That is very, very strong language, a strong rebuke for all those teachers in the Corinthian church. And what is it that marks these teachers at Corinth? They are peddlers of the word of God. This word for peddlers, it's the only place in scripture that this word is used. And it refers to making something a trade or engaging in retail business with the implication of deceptiveness and greedy motives. It was someone who was in it for personal gain. Whether it was to make a buck or to move up in the social ladder, they were in it for themselves. They didn't really believe it. There's a quote from Plato talking about such men. Obviously, it's not with regard to the church, of course, but it gives us an idea of the kind of thing that Paul meant by this word and what was going on in the Corinthian church. And this is from Plato, and I quote, Knowledge is the food of the soul. And we must take care that the sophist, or the scholar or the teacher, does not deceive us when he praises what he sells. Like those who sell food of the body, the merchant and the hawker, that's the word that we have in our scripture here, it's translated as hawker, for they praise all their wares without knowing what is good or bad for the body. In like manner, those who carry about items of knowledge to sell and hawk, that's our word again, 
and hawk them to anyone who is in want of them. Praise them all alike, though neither they nor their customers know the effect upon their soul. These teachers in Corinth, the commentator goes on to say, were hucksters, hawkers, peddlers of merchandise that they didn't really believe in. And Paul says, we didn't come to you in this way. We didn't even take money from you. We got jobs, we worked, so that we were not a hindrance to anyone. All we wanted to see was the gospel advance. And so Paul, in a negative way, he defends his character by saying, I didn't come to you hawking the scripture. I didn't come to you deceptively trading the scriptures to you as the mob of teachers that are currently in the church do. But, he says, I came as a man of sincerity. Paul was a man of sincerity. All faithful preachers are men of sincerity. The word means the quality or state of being free of dishonesty or simply pure. It's actually a compound word. It's the word for son and the word for judgment. And one preacher, when explaining this text, he talked about how in the ancient world, there was a common practice among merchants in the pottery trade. If they had fired a piece of pottery and it cracked or it chipped in the kiln, which often happens, they would fill the cracks or the chips with wax before they colored them to try and hide the imperfections. And then as this piece was subject to the sun, or you bought it and you took it home, to heat something in it, those perfections would be revealed. The wax would begin to melt and reveal the impurity of the peace. So Paul is saying here that he is pure. He was pure in his desire to see the Corinthian church sanctified. So the first qualification of a man who wants to be a minister is that he is not in it for himself. The first qualification of a gospel proclaimer is that he is not in it for himself. He's not in it to make a buck. He genuinely believes what he's preaching has the power to save and sanctify. Next, Paul says, he and every other faithful minister are from God. The ESV says commissioned by God, but the literal translation is just the preposition from from God. I think the ESV interpretation there is correct at what Paul is getting at, commissioned by God, sent out by God. A faithful minister is commissioned by God, sent from God. He really has come from God as God's messenger. Paul says he has come from God as all true ministers are from God. And what does that say about the many teachers of Many peddlers of God's word there. That means the large group of teachers Paul is taking shots at, and rightfully so, in Corinth, he says that they are not from God. They have not been commissioned by God. They go out based on their own authority. Paul says we are not like these peddlers. We are from God, they are not. What does a minister commissioned by God look like? In Acts 13, 1-3, we see where Paul and Barnabas were commissioned. The elders laid hands on them and sent them out, commissioned by the Holy Spirit, to go plant churches. How many of these teachers in Corinth were sent out by local churches by other commissioned teachers, by other elders, probably none of them. And it's the same way today. 95% of so-called pastors, they just deem themselves pastors and they go start their own church. The majority of pastors today could probably fall into the group that Paul is talking about there. Men who aren't commissioned by another group of qualified elders, they just go off and they do their own thing. Faithful men, Paul says, 
submit themselves to other faithful men for examination and then for commissioning. Just as he did in the church at Antioch. He served there for a time before they sent him out as a faithful missionary. As a confirmation that someone is sent out by God, when another group of godly men, elder qualified men, commission them for the work that they are doing. So he has to be sincere, and he has to be sent out. Paul goes on to say that the faithful minister of the gospel, he speaks before God or in the sight of God. That is to say that he speaks in the full light of the knowledge that God hears everything he says. He acknowledges God's omniscience, his power, and Paul declares that his ministry has been pure and God knows it. He's sent from God. He speaks in full accountability of God, knowing God sees and hears all that he does. Paul has made himself accountable and open to all, especially God. And finally, Paul says, the faithful Christian speaks in Christ. The faithful minister speaks in Christ. One commentator says, in Christ or in Christ Jesus was the sphere in which Paul's inner life ever moved. That is to say, he had the mind of Christ. He thought the thoughts of Christ. And this commentator goes on to say, to us, the phrase in Christ has a conventional sound. It's like a coin much defaced by frequent use. And it needs to be taken back to the mint in which it was fashioned. And that is so true. As we read our Bibles and we read in Christ, we tend to just pass over that. Like it means nothing at all. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's telling them that he speaks in Christ. Paul's identity is in Christ. His life is in Christ. He thinks the mind of Christ. And he says when he spoke and preached the gospel to the Corinthians, it was in Christ. Or as if, we're Christ, as if Christ were speaking to them himself. All that Paul said found consistency in Christ Consistency in the rest of Scripture, unlike all of these false teachers at Corinth. He found himself thinking Christ's thoughts after him, speaking only what Christ would speak. He spoke to them in Christ. Today you hear so many Christians, so many even Christian ministers, so-called evangelicals, saying, my Jesus would never say they've had to make a new Jesus up because the Jesus of the Bible rails against everything they believe. And so they just arbitrarily say, my Jesus would never, totally disconnecting it from the Jesus of the Scriptures. Those in Corinth they must have been doing something similar. Justifying gross immorality where a son had his father's wife, strictly condemned by Paul, all kinds of other immorality these false teachers were perpetuating in the church. Paul says, I am consistent with Christ. I speak for Christ. I am in Christ. So the faithful minister, he's not a huckster or a deceiver, but sincerely believes what he is teaching. He's commissioned by God, evidenced by recognition of outside body of elders. He knows he is accountable to God, makes himself accountable, and he speaks with consistency to Christ and the rest, <clears throat> the rest of Scripture. Now, for the church member, for all of us really who are not called by God to be ministers what does this mean for us what does this mean for you to proclaim Christ's victory what are the qualifications for you well first we can draw implications from these very same qualifications that Paul has 
Are you in it for personal gain? Are you in it for the money, the fame? Probably not. There's not a lot of church people who are in it for the money or the fame. But if you are, you feel good about yourself because you preach the gospel so many times and you find your worth in that, you ought to repent and continue to preach the gospel. Are you in it for personal gain? Do you really believe it? Have you been sent by God? Well, you don't have to be sent out as an ordained person by the elders. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus, in Matthew 28, 18, commissions all of us to go and evangelize and make disciples. Now, don't run off and start your own church tomorrow on a whim, but you have been commissioned by Christ to evangelize and make disciples. Are you ever mindful that what you say is in the presence of God? Are you accountable to God? Have you made yourself accountable to the local church in your gospel proclamation? Or do you just go off and do your own thing? Can you speak what is consistent with the scriptures? Do you know the gospel well enough to teach it to somebody else? Can you speak what the scriptures speak regarding salvation? If so, you are qualified. And if you're concerned that you cannot remain consistent with scripture, just take people right to the scriptures and read them then. You don't have to have them all memorized. Write them down and simply read the scriptures that proclaim the gospel to the people you want to reach. So do you really believe it? Are you in it for yourself? Can you accurately share the gospel? You have been commissioned by Christ. For 99% of you in this room, you qualify. In case you were wondering. And if you don't think you meet those qualifications, if you fear you aren't qualified, I'd love to talk with you. Come down after the service and talk with me. Otherwise, remember that as a Christian, you are in the triumphal procession, telling people that the victory is already won, and if they do not bow the knee to Christ now, they will die at the end of the procession. Their soul will be eternally lost. But the battle is won. Remember that no matter how people react to your gospel proclamation, it is a pleasing aroma to God. That God is faithfully advancing his kingdom through the gates of hell and he is pleased by the faithful proclamation of it. So be faithful. Leave the results up to him and remember that the victory is already won. Proclaim the gospel and enjoy the sweet smell of victory with Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have ordained Christ to win this victory for us. Because we were spiritually dead, there was no way we could win it ourselves. There's no way we could gain salvation in and of ourselves. But you, in Christ, won the victory. You sent your Son who was born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve, whose sacrifice was vindicated by being resurrected, that we can now have life in Him, that we can be clothed in His righteous robes and have our sin imputed to Christ, that You punished Him on the cross for all of our sin. Lord, I pray for any one who is here today who does not yet know you. But as your word has been preached, I pray that the sweet smell of the gospel proclamation would enter them and give them new life, Lord. I pray that they would see the, that their sin has bound them 
in chains. It has enslaved them that they are on their way to death eternal. But they, in the end, when you return and we receive life eternal, they will receive eternal death. They will be put to death at the end of the victory procession. The victory has already been won. It is already over. It is just a matter of time. Lord, today is the day of salvation. We pray that your spirit would go forth and regenerate hearts, that people would believe and turn from their sin and make you the Lord of their life. And Lord, for us who believe, help us keep our eyes fixed on the prize. Help us remember that the victory is already won. It is simply our job to faithfully proclaim it to the world around us. And that no matter what happens, you are pleased with our faithfulness. Give us, as Paul asked for prayer in Ephesians, give us boldness and courage to go out and do this, to proclaim your victory over sin and death. In Jesus' name, amen.